millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You are listening to Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. Welcome to Missed Apex Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Spanners Ready, and I'm joined by the spanking gorgeous Matt Turumpets. How's it going, my friend? I gotta say, I think my adrenaline is up a little bit for this show. For some reason, I cannot figure out why. We've got a gigantic double header. We have in the black corner uh, the the most learned F1 journalist there is, Joe Sayward, and we have in the yellow corner from parts unknown, Matthew Carter. It's going to be a titanic show today, Matt. But we can't get to it straight away. Do you know why? No. Why? Because there's always the price to pay, right? So there are some people out there who only download certain kinds of our shows, either race reviews or they only tune in for Joe or they only tune in for Matthew Carter. And they're not, they're not there to tune in to us at all, Matt. So we can't get any of our like showing off doing podcasty stuff in because they're only there to, to listen to that specific kind of show. So we have the two minutes or, or so up front where they have to listen to us because they can't be bothered to skip, right? Normally, about two minutes, yeah? Yeah, right. It's our chance to make our pitch. Exactly. Hire us, put us on your telly, show, featherlight entertainment, all the way, talk radio, etc. But we have two absolute giants in the shed tonight. So do we do double the, the waffle that annoys everyone, or half? I don't know which. I would go with half. Fine. I'm being overruled here. I'll show off towards the end. Okay, don't worry then. We are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you race reviews before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. And our first titanic guest today, some people say that it's not true in F1 until Joe Sayward says it, veteran of every Grand Prix since 1998. Joe Bam Bam Sayward. How's it going, Joe? 
88 for God's sake. How many times did I get it wrong? definitely said 88 that time. <laughs> I definitely said 88. But you said nine. No, no, you said 98. I promise. Because it's the best ever year for pop music. That's why it keeps popping into my head. Uh, Joe, your, your experience is without question. But what I've found really most surprising since we've started doing this podcasting together is the loyal following you've built up yourself. Like you have people who will follow you around the world. And as I said, people who don't believe any F1 news unless Joe Sayward says so. I don't know what to say about that. I mean, it's nothing I did deliberately. It just sort of happened, I suppose. Um, I've been doing it for a long time. So a lot of people, a lot of people started following me when I wrote in autosport in paper form, would you believe, a zillion years ago. And they've sort of followed me around ever since, which is, it's very nice. But um, I have no idea why. I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll okay. go over to the other side of the Atlantic to speak to one of the favouritestest guests uh, that we have in the shed. It's XF1 CEO, Matthew Carter. Welcome to the shed, Matthew. Hello, how are you all? Really good. Looking forward to to you and Joe chatting. Yeah. Of course, this isn't the first time you two gentlemen have, have shared a, a plectrum together. A plectrum? No, no, it's uh, not. No. That's, a, yeah. that's a guitar thing. I gate crashed. Um, I gate crashed <laughs> one of Joe's events in Montreal. You did. It was fun. Yeah, yeah. And we had a few. We had a few exchanges when you were a team principal and I was a journalist too, but not in public so much in those days. So <laughs> not so memorable for me those ones. <laughs> Joe, we do need to get the inside line on that. Then, uh, what was Mister Carter like? Because we know him as lovable bringer of information, but I always got the impression on Matthew's press conferences, that he had a very kind of stern expression. I imagine he was quite difficult to get things out of. Well, to be to be fair to Matthew, uh, he never told any lies, which is an extraordinary thing among Formula One team principals, which is very hard to do. Because if you don't tell lies, you've got to skirt your way around the things you don't want to say, which he did extremely well. Um, and I have a lot of respect for that because any old Muppet can tell a lie. It's not difficult. But actually sort of um, getting around things you don't want to talk about is much more um, impressive. So there you go. There's a compliment in there somewhere, I think. Thank you. I, I tried not to. I mean, I, um, I didn't have any media training but prior to uh, my quick step up the, la- the, the ranks at Lotus. Um, so, no, I just tried to be as, uh, as straightforward as I could and, uh, and put things across as, uh, as they were, warts and all, really. And there were quite a few warts when, uh, when I was running Lotus. <laughs> there were a couple, yes. Yeah, it was actually, to be fair, um, it was a really difficult time to do it. Um, and I think that team principals who, who sort of cruise along in easy times, it's a lot more simple. Than, than working in really hard times. And I think Matthew was basically in hard times all the time. He was deeply up to his neck in it most of the time. Um, but I think he did a good job. So there you go. I'm, I'm, I don't often uh, <laughs> praise too many team principals. But. Yeah, no, it was, it was a tough time. It coincided with the, uh, the last big rule change. I stepped in 2014 with the Renault engine, which uh, wasn't the uh, easiest of things to start with. And then we, we sort of moved on from there. But uh, no, it was good. And Joe was always, uh, was always equally straightforward and, uh, and fairly uh, easy to talk to. Now, that's the thing that seems to have really kind of set you apart from, from other F1 journalists, Joe, is your relationship with the team bosses. Like how, how nice do you have to be 
to them. Obviously, you want to ask the hard questions, <laughs> but at some point, if you're like super rude, they say, don't come to the motorhome, don't talk to us anymore. No, no, that's, it depends what you do. It's, it, it's all about building relationships. I have relationships with a number of team principals that you would not believe because they're just downright rude. Um, and, you know, we're Toto and I are completely rude to each other all the time. But that's, that is in itself uh, a, 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 a realization that we get on. The fact in England, when Toto first became a team principal of a British racing team, uh, my GP Plus colleague and I, David Tremaine, took him to one side one day and said, listen, there's something you need to know about the English. And he said, what's that? I said, when they're nice to you, watch out. If they're rude to you, it means they like you. Okay. And he went, huh, what do you mean? And I said, you're a beep. And he went, huh, so if I call you a beep, I'm doing the beeps for you here, um, then, then we get on fine. Yes, we get on fine. Anyway, about 10 days later, Susie came rushing up to me in a paddock somewhere and said, what have you done to my husband? And because apparently he was just going around calling everybody a beep all the time. And that, that continues. Gunter Steiner is the same. I walk into the motorhome and I say, without even flinching to anyone in the motorhome, is, is the lunatic about? And they go, he's upstairs. Um, so, you know, that's, that's the kind of relationship you need to have. Some of them don't have that sense of humor, but uh, that's, that's the kind of thing that, where you get on with people. When they have, also, when from humans. memory, from memory, you didn't really used to, and apologies if I've got this wrong, but you didn't used to make appointments through press secretaries and Never. have official meetings. No, exactly. <laughs> so you would just you would just wander up and down the paddock, as you do now. I mean, I saw you in Austin, and you're yeah. just wandering up and down the paddock, uh, very jovial and convivial and chatting away to people. And I think that style probably gets more out of the team principles than a very structured sit-down this is we're meeting Joe at 2 p.m. to discuss the strategy group or whatever it may be. Well, with the nicest will in the world, the PRs are just policemen. And uh, basically, uh, you don't want – because they also sit in on the conversations yeah. and they record everything. And no, no team principal is going to tell you anything really going on if you, if you talk to them on the record. So, yeah, you talk to them off the record, and then afterwards you decide what's to be published and what's not to be published, and that's the way to do it. So so I don't want to tell everybody how to do it, though, do I? Let's be honest. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting, Joe, because I was speaking to another journalist, a much more junior than you, starting out on their career, and, and they were saying about these appointments and how awkward they can be and very kind of sterile as well, and, you know, the heart's not kind of in it. But if you're catching people between a meeting or when they're wandering around with a bit of downtime, I don't know, you can catch them in a more guarded natural moment instead of right this is your yeah. job now to talk to me yeah there is a problem with that if you're a youngster and this is where i have an advantage which isn't fair um because if you're new on the scene in formula one uh to get anyone to actually stop and talk to you if they don't know you is really hard um and i'd hate to be a new boy now because it's a really tough thing to do so uh, mr carter of uh, lotus ceo fame uh, you talk about there being no media training for you but did you did you have an attitude with the journalists of like which ones you would speak to, which ones you wouldn't, or was there kind of, did someone whisper in your ear like don't don't speak to Sayward, he's going to repeat it all in a shed based program? No, again, it was it was all very sudden. My uh, my appointment, as as we've discussed in the past, so I think I first stepped foot in any F one company or building in the November or December of twenty thirteen. Um, and was obviously at testing by February. 
um, on the on the Australian Grand Prix in March. Um, so I pretty much decided myself. And uh, you know, you when you sit in the press conference, you know, there's um, Dieter Rankin always asks a very long winded question, and Ida uh, would he'd always have some under you could always tell there was some sort of sub question lurking within his question and i i learned that very quickly um the rest of them were all fairly easy going there was a young guy who i don't think does anymore who worked for the times um can't remember his name john uh, D- daniel johnson something like that uh, um he was a he was a nice guy i got on i got on pretty well with him i know he's left now um and yeah there's sort of i mean i i don't want to name check all of the, all the journalists but there was uh, there was some that I didn't get on with, and it generally was based on what they wrote. Um, I remember. And, and, well, I think it's to do with honesty, isn't it? If they yeah, if, they're, remember, if they're straight with you and you're straight with them, you have a relationship. If I, they think, I think I think I got off on the. Yeah, I very much got off on the wrong foot with Adam Cooper, um, and that was because he wrote something that I didn't say, or he he interpreted something that I'd said, and he completely twisted it around, um, and was the only one to do it. Um, and I had quite a blunt conversation with him. And after that, it was fine. We'd cleared the air. And I think he realized, I think he admitted that what he did wasn't necessarily uh, the best way to do it. And and we we moved on from there. So I'd, I've always, within business, I've always been fairly straight. And I don't believe in uh, rubbish. I nearly, I nearly, nearly needed beeping myself then. Um and yeah, I just think it's the best way forward. I think, you know, whether it's whether it's good or bad, I think honesty is the is the way to go. Is there like a, a hierarchy between your two respective positions? So, I mean, you obviously both need each other. F1 needs journalists. Journalists need someone to, to ask the question. But do you, do you think that there's, do either of you get the sense that one looks down on the other? Like the j- journalists are going, oh, you're, you're just another one through the meat grinder. Uh, Joe's <laughs> nodding quite a bit. Well, I think it works both ways, to be honest. Uh, I think there are, we do see, it's a bit like football managers, we do see a lot of team principals coming and going. At the same time, I fully understand why team principals look at journalists to a large extent as as being just parasites and, and out to get them because a, a number of journalists are out to get them. And um, and there are some journalists too who, who are just there to to sort of appear on telly kind of or ask the first question or whatever, you know, um, it, it's just, it's just, it's, it's a strange world. Would you say maybe stir the pot would be inappropriate characterization? I, I have done one or two races as an actual journalist, sort of a pretend journalist. Yeah, okay, I wish I'm you, a dilettante. Fine. I wish you it before. Oh, but I remember someone going around playing a recording to all of the drivers in a row that was very inflammatory just to see what they said. and. It doesn't seem like to me that that's the way to go if you want a long-term career. Well, that, that's the point. You can you can do you can have the anyone can come in and do a one-hit wonder. You can come in, destroy the sport, and never come back again. But if you're going to be around for a long time, you have to have relationships. That's that's all there is to it. And and the better the relationship, and the more trust there is, the more likely you are to get things. So you know it's all very well doing smash and grabs, but you don't get much out of it. And uh, a question. Without, that, yeah, go on. Sorry. I was going to say, without wishing to upset Joe, there's also uh, in any sort of journalism, generally negative stories mm, tend to no, get I more agree. traction than positive stories. So as a as a team boss, you were always very well aware of that. And I always knew that if something had come out in the press and the run up to a Grand Prix, that it would be the first thing the journalists would ask about. And that's because they're doing their job. But 
again, as Joe says, um, you know, there's ways of going about that, and there's there's salacious and attacking ways, and there's and there's slightly more factual based ways of going about it. So. And you don't have to be negative. You can also have a positive approach to things. You can ask the same questions, but if you ask yep. them in a positive way, you're much more likely to get a, a sensible answer. You know, I, I, I saw there was something on Netflix uh, of Toto being asked a question, and I, I, I listened to this question, and I just thought, that is the meanest, nastiest question I've heard in a long time. And Toto was, you could see him, he was, he was angry as hell, um, but he controlled himself. Um, and but, you know that's the kind of thing that just doesn't work. Um, and you know what's the point of winding people up if you don't need to? I'm curious. Then uh, I was going to ask a question from the chat room. I'd like to come back to it in a minute. But earlier on, someone asked about the drive to survive questioning of Albin, and how do you rate that journalist um, behavior on the scale of Joe at the top and a bomb thrower at the bottom? Uh... I, if I remember correctly, it was John McAvoy of the Daily Mail, and and John is a is, he works for a publication that wants scoops, and so his job is to find scoops. And basically, when Albon turns up in Formula One, we all know there's a backstory there, uh, and we all know that you know Albon will talk about it once maybe, but there's no point in going on about it because it's there and it's not going to change. So just the, the view is kind of get over it. And uh, and I think that the you know that the male wanted what the male wanted, and John tried to get it, and it didn't work. So um, Albon is, is a proper proper guy, proper operator. He wasn't actually it was it was the PR man who was sort of shutting it down, wasn't it? If I remember correctly. Matt, what was your other question from the chat room? And I'll just do my little bit where I say, if you want to join us live for these shows, go on to YouTube and search for Missed Apex Podcast. You can uh, bring it up on your phone. And you can have us at the top in the video, and then you can chat along uh, along the bottom, like uh, Michael, uh, Bataves, Rotti, Josh, Udia, Keith, uh, Bernie, Ecclestone, probably not the real one, Rotti Sheep, Christopher, and Mark. Hello, guys. Welcome to the chat room. Be sure to like and subscribe. Matt, what was the question uh, that came up earlier? Well, our friend Joe Deersley would very much like to know, and this is a two-part question, and this is in part why I was drawn to it. Which current driver would make the best journalist and or broadcaster, in your opinion? So that's not someone who's already made the switch. But of the current grid, who do you think would be best, who would be best at each job? Uh, I think Sebastian Vettel would make a good journalist. Really? Yeah. Sebastian Vettel is very smart. People underestimate him. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's an intellectual. Not, not, he's not just a... Uh, a clever bloke. He's an intellectual. He's not. It's not canny. It, it's actually intellect. It's a bit like. It's not quite as intellectual as Damon Hill, but it's it's heading in that sort of direction. Um, he's a very very smart guy, and I think he'd probably write well and he'd ask the right questions. So yeah, I, I, I think I'd go with him. Uh, I didn't actually plan, you know, you guys to sit and ask you about the relationship between you know predator and prey, uh, but now I'm I'm fascinated. I want to ask Mister Carter. As uh, is that all right? Does that sit well with you, uh, Matthew, Mister Carter? I, I feel like Matt would be too informal, so I don't. I don't know. I'm trying to gauge where we are on a, like a you know a bro terms. <laughs> whatever you want, I'll respond to anything. Call me whatever you want. Well, no, that was non-committal, so I'm going to stick to Mister Carter until invited otherwise. Uh, Mr. <laughs> oi, you, oi, you works as well. Never, <laughs> I would never do that. 
Uh, Mr. Carter, when you are, uh, you know, there as the team principal with your drivers, uh, to us, the, the relationship with the media is everything. That's, that's the only time we really get to see you guys. How, how much of a part of your job and the driver's job is media or is it, you know, is it an annoyance on the side? Um, it's, it's a fairly big part. Um, I mean, on, to be perfectly honest, what, as the times that we were in at Lotus, um, the majority of what I was doing was trying to keep sponsors happy um, because that was our, that was our income. So yes, there was the battle on track and there was the, so everything with me at Lotus was about money really, which is not a very nice thing to say, but that's what it was all about. So our form of income was, uh, was the money from FOM for where we finished the season and sponsorship. So the press and the media is a way to get the car the pictures of the car out. It's a way of getting people talking about the team, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's important, but it's not, it wasn't really ever the life and death, certainly not for me. The The drivers may be a little bit more. Um, and while I say there was no media training, they are told what they can and can't say when they go into those press conferences. Um, as was I, um, I only really ever got asked anything that was a, that was about money and, uh, and about engine moving from Renault to Mercedes engines. They were that and money were the only two things I really ever got asked about in depth because they were the things that were juicy at the time. You say that the sponsorship is the thing that really was driving you. F1 doesn't seem to have gone down an ultra uber American style of really on the nose advertising. Like the drivers aren't stopping and going, um, I'll answer your question, but oh, it's so hot. I'm just going to have to open this cool, refreshing can of seven up to cool me down like there was not that thing of like oh you must wear a sandwich board with pepsi on it but there is there is product placement if you watch yep. lewis hamilton in action with his monster you'll see it all the time but it's very subtly done um which is fine because i hate people who say my motorcraft ford was terrific today i just want to go <laughs> i think there's i think there's a there's a certain amount of and again without wishing to upset anyone the difference between the americans and the uh, the english based because it's as joe said it's very much it's very much prevalent i mean you won't see a red bull driver taking a drink out of anything other than a red bull even though it's water that's inside it it's a red bull branded mclaren guys now have coca-cola um you know it's very much branded like that way at lotus i had to have a microsoft mobile phone at the time um and a microsoft oh. surface device if we got seen with if i got photographed with an apple phone then microsoft would go uh, ballistic um mm. and the same for the drivers so you know, that the was true watch. of cigarettes that was true of cigarettes in the old days too um they used to nanini used to smoke marlboro but he drove for camels so he'd have to every day he'd have to fill his camel packet with marlboro cigarettes <laughs> different times different times <laughs> So did you have your team members make up a Microsoft phone looking case for your iPhone to just stick it in then? No, but we, funnily enough, Microsoft, um, I was trying to get Microsoft to commit to a much bigger deal. And um, one of the reasons that they were reticent to do so was because, so this must have been 2014. So just prior to that, maybe 2012, 2013, Microsoft did a big sponsorship deal with the NFL. Uh, they were all around the the grounds at the NFL, and all the um, presenters had Microsoft Surface devices. And on live TV, I think it was at the Super Bowl, but I may be I may be making the story a bit grander than it was. On live TV, the cameraman came behind one of the presenters, and the guy was using the Surface device to hold up his iPad. 
So he had his iPad sitting inside <laughs> the back of the Surface device and it had gone on to TV and it had obviously been captured and it had been memed and it had been mocked and, and Microsoft were so reticent to, to chuck any more money into sports sponsorship because of that. So they're obviously aware that's what's going to happen. But with us at Lotus, yeah, it came down to, you know, they didn't want us to be seen drinking cans of Red Bull, um, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, uh, it's very prevalent. I think it's maybe just a bit more subtle than it is in America. Let's move on to one of the listener questions on Twitter. Matt, it is really, it is hot in this shed. Excuse me for just a moment while I sip a cool can of uh, Coke Zero. Tastes just like regular Coke. And Joe's drinking, I think, neat hand sanitizer. So uh, let's glue, move on. Was it glue? <laughs> and a can of, uh, of Stella from uh, Mr. Carter as well. Uh, the question on Twitter, that was a genuine thing. That wasn't just a pure bit. It is from Craze for Race and says, which skills do team bosses require the most? Uh, and on a scale of one to ten. So I think the first bit for, for Mr. Carter, which skills do team bosses require the most? And on a scale of one to ten, uh, where would we rank the current bosses? Let's do that. Let's see what they're willing to say on a podcast. Mr. Carter, which skills do team bosses require the most? Um, I, I would say that running an F1 team is really, and it's not the sexiest answer in the world, it's not a hell of a lot different to running any other business. Um, and therefore, doing it, and don't forget, and, and I've I've said this before, but the way that people approach it is is very different. So I was very much a managing director, CEO, and team principal. Some of the guys are just out there doing the sporting side of it. Some of them are not. But So for me, all-encompassing, I would say that the number one trait that you have to have is good people skills. So being able to deal with people, whether it's a, a journalist or a mechanic or a multi-million dollar paid driver, um, being able to handle all those people, to talk to them and to, to engage them in the correct way, I think is the, is the number one skill. And that goes for any business room. I, I agree with that, uh, except that I would say you also need to be very good at fighting fires. You have to be, you know, because you, every time you turn a corner, you're walking into something you're not expecting. So um, I think that happens a lot in Formula One. And, and I think the really good ones just can handle pretty much anything that's thrown at them. But I do think the, interper- the, the, the personal skill thing is very important. But the, the, um, one of the big differences with Formula One as opposed to other businesses is that you are you're tested every two weeks against your but your your closest competitors in a very public way. So there is really is nowhere to hide. It's not as if you, you can spend 18 months making a new product and when it comes out you can either fail or not fail. It's uh, it's very public, it's very quick and it's very immediate that you're that you're looked at. So being able to do things on the hoof, I guess, is also a, is also a good skill. Uh, I tell you what then, for the second part of the question, uh, because Mr. Carter was talking about negativity before, we won't do that. We're not going to be super negative ninnies. We're going to we're going to pick each of you the top two current team bosses. And as someone in the chat room says, are we saying team principals or team bosses? I think we know who we mean when we say team principal. I know you were also the CEO, uh, Matthew, but I think it's yep. the guy they put out in front of the the press, the guy who's running things on race day. Joe. So at Williams, at Williams yeah. it would be Claire and not Frank, even though exactly. Frank is still technically the team principal. McLaren, so yeah, okay. McLaren is a slightly tricky one because they have the team principal, but then Zach Brown does a lot of the front of shop stuff, doesn't he? So, that, But apart from that, I think we know who we mean. Joe, who would you put up in your top two right now? Who's the nines and tens? Toto Wolf and Otmar's F now. You just said the F word on the stream. 
Like, you think you said it quietly, but, like, everyone definitely heard it. Here we go. That's exactly what I was going to say. Those exact two. I thought he's definitely going to say um, Toto, but I thought Otmar was going to be my uh, well, my ace card. Let's go with your ace card as it was then, Mr. Carter. Otmar, what's well, so, what so, no, what, what makes him a nine or a ten? Otmar? Uh, I, uh, my reason for saying Otmar, it's probably the same as Joe's, I don't know, but I just, I know behind the scenes what he has dealt with over the last few years um, and how he's dealt with it and the way he comes across, um, the way he is to the media and to, to me in private, I guess to Joe in private as well, and just the way he handles everything that goes on there. And again, without wishing to talk out of turn, the way he's handled... Um, Lawrence coming in there and the way that Lawrence is um, has been 10 out of 10. Isn't talking out of turn the whole point of this show? <laughs> well, normally. Okay, so so Lawrence Stroll is very hard to work for and with, and uh, I think that Otmar is doing an, uh, an amazing job of, uh, I think of managing had, expectations. I think they've had one or two uh, tense moments between them, but I think Otmar's a, he's just a very, very good all-rounder, great interpersonal skills. Uh, and he knows what he's doing. You know, some of them have no clue what they're doing. So they are, they tend to be sort of swimming, um, trying to stay on the surface. Um, and it kind of comes across that way. You know, you feel like they haven't got a clue. So I know with Stroll coming in, um, we saw Bob Fernley go. But up until that point, how how big a role did Bob play in the former Force India? Was Was he just limited to a specific role and was mainly the Otmar show? Or was it, it more of a partnership? It, it changed as it went along because Bob was basically the man who translated VJ into real world um, conversation, whereas Otmar was running the racing team. And as it got more and more extreme, Bob got more important uh, in as much as he had to explain what was going on. And clearly he wasn't in line all the time with what VJ was saying and doing, whereas Otmar was just fighting fires and keeping the whole thing alive. So they they were they were working alongside one another, doing different jobs. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, once VJ was gone, uh, Bob's role sort of evaporated in a way. Yeah, I, th- I think I think Otmar very much is when you understand and you see the business behind. Then Otmar is very much more a hands-on person who was who was doing the job. You know, Bob was. Uh, was much more of a in front of the TV cameras kind of guy. Um, I know Otmar was the one that was there early morning and stayed till late and knew what was going on, knew the names of the team, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All the things that, you know, the, the personnel skills, as I, as I said earlier, the things that really matter, you know, um, with the best one in the world, I don't think Bob would have uh, been able to walk into the garage and talk to all the mechanics. Uh, so can't let your earlier comment slide, really, Mr. Carter. Why is Stroll the worst person in the world to work with? I believe that's what you said. I didn't say the worst person in the world. He I didn't just... say the worst are these, person in the world. Are these headphones world, working? I, don't, I think ugh, that's what I heard. Uh, what, what, what's the, what's the, put it this way then. What's the possible conflict points that could be happening between um, Mr. Schaffnauer and Mr. Stroll? Uh, there's probably <laughs> some element of um, the, uh, the person sitting behind the steering wheel that uh, they don't necessarily uh, 100% agree on. Um, there is. And I, listen, I've um, I've worked with both of them. I've I've done a couple of deals with them recently. And uh, Lawrence is a is a is a good guy, but he's a very very ruthless businessman. And you don't get to where you get to without being that way. And um, 
I just think that um, when you're the, how do I word this best? When you're the main guy putting the, the, the money up, then, you know, you get all the shots and um, there's probably not many people that, uh, that go against what Lawrence says and survive. And I think Otmar is doing that very well, not going against necessarily, but is managing to appease what Lawrence wants as well as making the team operate in a good, in a good way. I think, I think just to follow, to follow that up, uh, Lawrence got to where Lawrence is because he's demanding. Yeah. He, he, he wants things done. He wants it to happen. Uh, now, Otmar is going to look at the situation and say, look, Lance is okay. He's not bad. He's had two podiums. He's not stupid, but w- w- maybe we could find someone better. You know, if we had Ocon and Perez together, maybe we'd score more points than we would do with Lance. That's a perfectly reasonable argument, which I think even, you know, Lawrence would have trouble denying. I mean, we, Lance is, I'm not saying Lance is a fool. I'm not saying Lance is useless. What I'm saying is that there's a better choice, perhaps. And that's where there would be clearly, for me, that's where the major conflict would come. Um, and then also the question, I think, possibly of, of, you know, generally speaking, Lawrence is probably more involved uh, or wants to be more involved in uh, day-to-day decision-making than VJ ever was. Yeah. Like he, he wants things done his way, whereas Vijay left it up to Otmar to do stuff because he trusted Otmar, and quite rightly so. Otmar did a great job. And, you know, you can, I, I've always been a critic of Vijay's, but but Vijay did do one great thing, which was hire Otmar and Andy Green, to be fair. But, you know, I think, I think that uh, having Otmar, um, your ability to choose good people is actually one of another great skill. Um, and I think that's one of the things that Toto has. He knows who's good and who's not. He figures it out real quick. And let's be under no illusions that Lawrence Stroll wouldn't have bought the um, the racing team if it wasn't for his son to be a driver. Uh, even though he says sometimes in the press that he's a big F1 fan and that he would have done it anyway, it's, uh, that's the reason he bought it. So, and I, and I think Otmar is fully aware of that and fully appreciative of that. So um, it's a discussion and argument that they know not necessarily they're going to can I, can I challenge you on that one, actually? Because Lawrence has been around Formula One since 92 or 3. Uh, people forget how long he's been around. He was with the original Team Lotus in, in, with Tommy Hilfiger when it was run by Peter Collins and the whole thing collapsed. Um, and then he went on to Ferrari. So he's been around the sport um, almost as long as I have, not necessarily in his front, uh, you know, even before Lance was born. Lawrence was in Formula One. But so I, uh, the difference is that he now has dished out his cash and bought a team. I don't think he would have done that before. I mean, I had I had two, three meetings with Lawrence when he was looking to buy Lotus. Um, very undercover, very uh, in hotel rooms in the in the dead of night type meetings. Um, and he was um, Lawrence, uh, Lance was at Ferrari at the time. Um, so part of the deal would have meant that he would have bought the team. It would have stayed as Lotus, but we would have had to put a Ferrari engine in the car. Um, and I had some long discussions with him. I'm aware of his, his interest in Formula One, his interest in cars in general. Um, his collection of cars that he's got here in Montreal is incredible. Um, you know, he owns a race circuit, all those things he had before, before Lance was born. But I personally don't think, and this is with a little bit of background knowledge as well, that he would have bought an F1 team if it wasn't for Lance. 
Um, he would have still been interested, may have still sponsored an F1 team, but to make that jump to buy an F1 team, um, and I know it was opportunistic, but it was very much, in my opinion, it was very much done because he wanted his son to be in the, in, in the driving seat. Uh, in the chat room, we have got uh, Bernie uh, suggesting that, or, or reminding us that Tommy Hilfiger brought sponsorship to Lotus. Was that uh, was that when you were there, Matthew? No? no. Before that? Prior to me. Ah, right. That was way, 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 91-ish, something like that. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, right. And I, from a personal point of view, had absolutely no idea that that conversation would lead to Lance Stroll at all. No sorry, no clue. But Matt, uh, this is a normal news show. Just because we've got big guns here, Mr. Carter and Mr. Saywood, doesn't mean that we can't do our, our normal thing. Big Dirty News. need to know what that big dirty news is i turn to you matt trumpets to to lay the to lay down the groundwork so that our audience understand what's going on and what we're talking about and then we go to our panel of experts which we're quite rich in today i mean it's better than when it's like kyle and jeansy those mugs they don't know anything these guys know everything it's great yeah it's it's terrifyingly awesome to listen to them just go back and forth and talk about all of the things that you really wanted to know but no one was going to tell you until they wound up on this show. And I have to say, we're in for some real luck because up until just a day or two ago, I was going to have to ask about the Concord Agreement that I found online and quiz Joe about pages 97 to 103 from the 1998 Concord Agreement. Well, that sounds thrilling. But happily for us, Toto Wolf went and spent some money bought a stake in Aston Martin for the small sum of $43 million, which didn't seem small to me. And that raises a few questions because we've seen a lot of stories talking about Toto leaving Mercedes and investing in Aston and being Stroll's friend and sort of getting the buyout to let things happen so that Lance becomes world champion at Mercedes, which I know is your favorite, favorite theory. Uh, I like to think of it as a uh, an Oracle-like prediction, but you can call it theory if you want. And there was a quote, um, it was in the Autosport uh, article uh, from Toto, and he specifically said to the Austrian media, however, I am somewhat surprised by the turn of events over the winter and by the behavior of individual people. Of course, this is also has to do with my decision on what to do in 2020 and beyond. Now, he went on to say he was definitely staying short term, but I got to ask, what does that mean and who is he talking about? Mr. Saywood. Well, I haven't heard that. So I don't know. Um, there's always been a lot of rumours about him and Ola Kalanius not getting on very well. Um, he always says that's not true. They're very different kind of people. One is corporate and one is more of a cowboy. Who's that character, Joe? Um, Sorry, Ocken. Ola Kalanius, the, the the chairman of Daimler, uh, and basically he's he's the part. Well, Daimler is the partner with Toto in that racing team. Um, now. I think that the racing team is in the process of of trying to find a way to get to uh, cost neutral with Daimler. In other words, they're trying to raise money from sponsorship so that Daimler doesn't put anything in and the race team just makes money and, and does a good job. Now, to go back to, to Toto buying into Aston Martin, I think this is well overblown. First of all, I don't think he spent any money at all. And the, when I say that... 
he's certainly not 43 million. You can buy the shares he bought for about eight or nine million dollars. Um, and basically, I think he probably borrowed the money to do it. And I think he's lent the money, he's put the money in because Lawrence's investment in Aston Martin, if you look at the share price, it's been absolutely cataclysmic since he bought it. It's just gone down, down, down. It's 55p now. Um, and basically, it was a massive opportunity. So, so what all, all that Toto has done is, is to help his mate, uh, who is, you know, he's, he's bitten off a lot. He's a good, solid guy, and he'll make it. He'll turn it round if it's possible. I think Toto and, and Ernesto Bertarelli, the richest man in Switzerland, has waded in with about the same kind of shares as as um, uh, as Toto has acquired. But I, I, nobody ever uses their own money to buy shares. You borrow it, and you and then <laughs> you pay it back over time. That's how it works in this game. So, uh, you know, it helps Lawrence. It helps Toto. To I mean, Toto. I don't know what it was, but it's now 55p and it was 330 pence. So it's six and a half times the value uh, about less than a year ago that company was. Aston Martin has been in free fall. Now, things settle down, they start building cars again. Logically, it will go up to somewhere in a sensible level and Toto will make multiples of what he's putting in, even if he's borrowed the money. So for me, it's just a purely business decision. It's done through nominee companies. There's no conflict of interest, none of that. And I don't think there's any talk at all of Toto coming in. Now, if he falls out with Daimler and he sells his shares in Mercedes, would he go and do it? I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, uh, there is an argument that says, well, what else can Toto achieve with Mercedes? The answer is he can go on breaking records. Uh, You know, he might think to himself, well, I can do it again with another racing team. Good for me. I'll look really clever then. But you know, it's a hell of a it's a hell of a job that never what works. he's done, and to do it again is <laughs> going to be really tough. But I don't know what Matthew thinks, but that's my view of the Aston Martin thing. So. Well, I'm glad uh, Mr. Carter's going to weigh in because I know n- nothing about what you've just said with share prices and investments. Uh, but Mr. Carter, you're fantastically wealthy. Uh, is it true you never spend any of your own money, and that's that's why you live on your own estate? Not entirely. Not entirely. Um, but Toto is um, Toto's a very very clever guy. I I really got on well with Toto when when uh, obviously when we switched from Renault to Mercedes, there was lots and lots of lots of meetings and discussions. And uh, he's a, he's a really good guy. But what you have to remember about Toto is that his route, although he is a racer through and through, his route to where he got to came through the business world. You know, he's an investor. He's a He's not technically a venture capitalist, but he's not far off. He's got a history of investing in technology companies. He obviously has also got a track record of having shares in other F1 teams because he had his shares in Williams for a long, long time. And that was how he sort of ended up coming to the forefront of Formula One through investing from a business point of view into Williams because he believed it was a good thing to do. And then he took Williams public. Um made an awful lot of money. Um, and then he moved from there into to Mercedes. So he has a track record of investing in businesses. As Joe rightly says, there's an opportunity potentially, depending on how you think this pandemic is going to play out when we're going to come out the other side of it and what the world's going to look like when we come out the other side of it. Maybe everyone will realize that they don't need a car. though. Everyone can stay at home. So cars, uh, nobody will buy a new car. But anyway, a, um, I think he's looked at it as, a, as an opportunity. Um, and as Joe says, it's it's done completely openly. Um, my personal opinion, and I said this, I think, on our last discussion, is that Toto won't become 
the he went on Aston Martin. Uh, if you really wanted to pin me down to an opinion, the most likely thing for Toto to do would be to take uh, a period out of the sport, which he's going to have to do, and then come back and run Liberty. Um, because I think he's the best person to do that. And I think he realises that. And I think if Liberty have got their heads screwed on, they realise that as well. But I think, and, uh, and Joe will be able to answer this, they they did pass a, is it, does he have to be two years that he wasn't, uh, they call I it the Toto Wolf clause, well, don't I, they? There is a Toto Wolf clause. I think it's three years, but I'm not right. sure. I'm not sure it's actually written down as fact as yet, but it's basically there. Uh, in an agreement, which is somebody who has served as an immediate team principal within the last X, and it's either two or three. But to be honest, I agree with that because um, if you've if you've left a trail of bodies behind you as a team principal, um, going into uh, running the whole sport is you're going to have people who aren't going to get on with you. And the only thing I'd say about um, Toto. And, and having another team principal or a team person like Bernie running the sport is Liberty's entire philosophy has been to get everyone to work together. Um, and Chase has been really good at that. You know, you never hear Chase bullying anybody. You never hear Chase telling somebody this is how it's going to be. Chase just goes and talks to them and walk, talks them around and makes people walk, you know, work in the same direction. Um, and I think that Toto would be less... Uh, of a diplomat and more perhaps more bernie like and i'm not yep. sure uh, i'm not sure i agree that he's necessarily the best he's certainly the best of the people in formula 1 who know about formula 1 but it might be a better uh, to have an entertainment industry person who has different perspectives because i, I think sometimes formula 1 gets lost in its own fundament um, yep. looking at um, looking at things from far too close up and not looking at the big picture, like the target audience for Formula One should be 35-year-old women because they bring kids. They bring the future. Right. I have no idea where to go with that. So instead, I'm going to uncomfortably segue onto our next question, but not before I sit and have a quick personal and private chat with Joe Saywood. Joe, I thought we were going to come on here today to advertise your virtual audiences with Joe Saywood, the first of which we ran last week, and the second of which is on this Friday, where we we had um, a very interesting Zoom call with uh, uh, a few dozen people, each asking you questions. Well, you are very different to where you to, to how you are on the podcast. Obviously, not quite the same as a live closed off room, uh, but certainly a lot more candid. It was a great success, and I can't advertise it because you've sold out the second one immediately. Well, I, what can I say? I mean, uh, I'd, I'd like to sell thousands and thousands of tickets to every audience. Unfortunately, people wouldn't be able to ask questions if you did that. So they have to be limited in the nature of the numbers, but I'm happy with that. Um, and the fact it's sold out in 24 hours uh, makes me very happy. Yes. It means we can also, the glorious thing about virtual audiences is we can do time zone audiences now. We don't have to limit ourselves to one market. We can, we can do one Monday, Wednesday, Friday, one for the Americas, one for Europe, and one for Australia. With the kind permission of our better halves. But yes, I have. Had well, there some, is that too, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I did have some Australians asking if we could do an Australian-friendly time zone one. and I'm, I'm in fear. I think that means getting up very early for their evening time. But I'm sure I can rub the sleep out of my eyes and do that. So look out on Joe's website or Joe's blog. Search for Joe Blogs F1, 
which is where Joe will announce the next one. And I think, mm-hmm. Joe, you will agree that my running and moderation of that event was a hassle-free experience and a great way for you to connect with your audience for a reasonable cut of the entrance fee. And I'm sure you would join me in recommending me to other people who'd want that service. Absolutely not. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, it was very good, Spanish. It was very well done. And you did all the technical stuff. And and yes, absolutely. So I recommend you highly, Matthew. If you want to start doing virtual audiences, get lost. It's my my turf. <laughs> Uh, if any, if Actually, any, I do have people. There are people. Uh, Peter Nygaard, who's a photographer of Grand Prix Plus, uh, who is Danish, and now has audiences left, right, and centre, having nicked the idea really? from me. Fortunately, he, he does it only for the Danish market, but he's touring Denmark. I mean, it's extraordinary. Yeah, I, um, I have to say the, the one, the one that we did here in Montreal was very was good fun. I was. Uh, there's some trepidation before I uh, before I wandered along, but it was uh, no, it was it was very enjoyable. It was it's, it's certainly a different uh, different Joe Sayward that uh, shows up at those than uh, than than we normally see. Yeah, Joe Sayward does impersonate impersonations as well at that in uh, in audiences. I mean, most of the Zoom call was just Joe doing impressions, song and dance. There was uh, the bowler hat thing where he spins it on his arm. And puts it on his head. Uh, but no, it was lovely. And everybody, there was such good feedback, Trumpets. You were, you were sat in on it and people really did say, you know, it felt like an intimate video call and they would come back and do it again. Yeah, for myself, I had no idea that Joe was that flexible. I mean, it was just <laughs> Yeah, I know. I didn't, I didn't even see the ping pongs. I didn't see the ping pong balls I'm not coming. That flexible. I know I've been gardening a lot, but steady on. <laughs> but anyway, the, the important takeaway is that if you need those services, richardready.com. Uh, my rates are really super reasonable. I don't know if you can hear me, but I've frozen up. So now, Joe, you've just—I was advertising my thing so I can eat food. You've frozen up and complained about it, and Carter's pouring yet more booze. It's only like eleven a.m. where you are, Mister Carter. Shameless plugging. Shameless. Shameless. It's a Sunday. He's allowed to have a drink. Richardready.com. Yeah, nearly four o'clock. I didn't even get a chance to talk about my podcasting services that I offer. You'll just have to go to the oh site to God. check it out. <laughs> Nick Spriggs, Nick Spriggs in our patron Slack group says, do your esteemed panel. He didn't say that. I'm bigging them up. Do the esteemed panel know how far along preparations got in Vietnam? I was never quite convinced, says Nick Spriggs, that the track would actually be ready for its date and wondered if Chase Carey was actually there uh, instead of in Melbourne to figure out if they could run the race regardless. Um, I guess, Joe, uh, my, my question is, because I know Mr. Carter uh, has has dealings from the track side. Uh, you have an intimate knowledge of it from the FIA side. Uh, so I want to talk about the relationship and how it's changed between the different regimes, between track and, and F1. But firstly, Vietnam, how far along did they get? Could they have run a race? Yes, no question about it. The, the the problem that was going on there was just the coronavirus thing. Uh, and to be honest, uh, I didn't ever book anything to go to Vietnam um, just because it, it's got a very, very long border with China. And it was it's a very porous border. And uh, uh, I, I, I was always a little bit suspicious that the numbers weren't entirely right. Now, that may be right, that may be wrong. Um, but I kept checking to see what the uh, 
to see what the uh, accommodation and flights were like, and there was lots of availability. But, you know, their fundamental problem, there were two other things that people haven't thought about. One is that the Chinese were going to take about 30% of the tickets, and they, they all disappeared, literally gone overnight. The second thing is they didn't have marshals because the marshals from Vietnam mm-hmm. were due to be sent to Australia to do training, and they didn't go. So they didn't have anybody trained. And, you know, by the point at which uh, they were getting into the crucial zone, where are they going to get marshals from? Because Bahrain had an outbreak going on, um, you know, and there are only so many places where marshals are trained up who can fly elsewhere. The Australians weren't going to go into uh, into Vietnam in large numbers, given, given that current status or, or that status at that particular moment. So I, I think in the end, it was a kind of inevitable... Uh, thing and, and in fact, it would have been. I mean, as, as things turned out, by the time their date came, uh, the world had just disappeared into the into this virus. So, you know, um, it would never have happened anyway. So, I'm curious. I know that, or I remember that when Singapore first started up, the marshals trained in Malaysia. Would there still have been marshals in Malaysia that might have been available for Vietnam in the instance that the virus didn't happen and things sort of went on as normal? Yeah, if, if the virus hadn't happened, there would have been marshals available. There would have been Australians, Brits go out to these things too. We occasionally have weird stuff like in Baku. I think I might have told the story before, but in Baku they had they had uh, marshals coming in from Bahrain, which got really interesting because they had they had one marshal post that was Sunni Muslims and one other marshal post that was Shias, and they were having punch ups, you know, literally because they they didn't agree on on them. Religious matters, but you know, you, you, it's very difficult to find marshals um, who are um, trained in all the right ways, and the only way you can get it is is over time. So, um, Australia and Bahrain, and to a much lesser extent uh, Malaysia, but Britain as well, has been exporting marshals around the world for a long time to places that are new and don't know how to do it. So they go there and they train people up. And then gradually they fade away, or or not, as the case may be. There's a lot of British marshals still turn up in Singapore, I think. Uh, well, for the record, Joe, I think all the religions are exactly the same amount of correct as each other. Uh, but uh, so I, do I. But that doesn't stop them fighting, and you know, whatever. I'll go to Mr. Carter before we stray into dangerous territory. Am I telling tales? If I say that you are organised, you are involved somewhat in the Canadian Grand Prix. You're telling lies, yeah. I'm telling lies. Mm-hmm. Okay, in that case, as someone who isn't involved at all, uh, how have you seen the relationship change between the, the regimes? Obviously, Liberty have been at the helm for a few years now. Uh, it's no secret that some of the traditional tracks that rely on uh, on gates coming through and not just, say, government backing are are struggling and have been struggling for a long time. Is Liberty better at dealing with those new tracks than, say, Bernie was? So I know you're always 100% accurate in your facts and your memory is is absolutely on point. Yep. But the reason that I am here in Canada is because Bernie wanted me to come and help him to run the race here. Uh, I did an agreement with Bernie, which was a handshake agreement. I moved here, I settled, and then Bernie sold to Liberty. And Liberty decided at that time that they just wanted to keep the status quo. Um and by then I was married and a baby on the way, et cetera, et cetera. So Trapped. that's the reason that I'm here in Montreal. It was because, and I spent maybe six or seven months doing the background research on the Grand Prix here, the facts, the figures, the numbers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So 
I'm uh, I'm pretty uh, pretty well versed on on how that works, and I've and I've looked at the same model across a few different at a few different circuits. Um, so if you take Montreal just for a second, um, so this was back in 2015. The figures were for 2015. So over the race weekend here in Montreal, officially there was let's round it to 300,000 people go to the circuit. If we assume that that's 100,000 per day even though it's not because there'll be people that have got three-day tickets, et cetera. But let's just say that it is. There was an extra one, just over 1 million visitors came to Montreal from, from more than 40 miles outside of Montreal. There was over a million extra people came to Montreal over that race weekend. Now, in Montreal, it's slightly different to some of the other circuits. You know, there's a big area of downtown that's closed off. There's festivals. There's, there's all sorts of things going on. And there are petrol heads from the northern half of the USA, and obviously all from Canada, who come to Montreal to be in the city at the time that the Grand Prix is on, and they have no intention of going anywhere near the circuit. As a result of that, a lot of the businesses, the bars, the restaurants, and the hotels, make an awful lot of their yearly income over that week or weekend, extended weekend. Therefore, they pay an awful lot of tax. Therefore, the government gives a good there's three forms. So there's the city, there's provincial, and there's federal money. It all gets thrown into the pot to help to organize the Grand Prix here. So I'm assuming where your conversation, your question is going. In terms of running a race here behind closed doors, then I don't think it's going to work in terms of the funding because there's no incentive for the three elements of government to give any cash because it's done because they get an, they get an immediate and a very visible return on their cash. So that's how it works here. Um, and it's and, and there's very different models for all the different race circuits all around the world. I mean, the likes of Abu Dhabi and Bahrain, you know, it's all cash that's thrown at it. They're not, they're not interested particularly in people turning up. So there's lots of different business models. Um, what I think is going to happen, it's going to cause some big problems. The promoter here, um, who I'm sure Joe knows uh, Francois very well, um, He's going to be in big difficulty, or he is in big difficulty. Um, I think he should technically have cancelled the race. I know for a fact that they called it a postponement because they didn't want people to, they didn't want to give the money back to the people that had bought tickets already. So by saying it's postponed instead of cancelled, then they can cling on to the uh, the tickets, uh, the ticket revenue for a little bit longer. So he's going to be in difficult, and there's going to be an awful lot of promoters around the world that are going to equally be in a lot of difficulty. Um, how that falls back to liberty, apologies for such a long-winded answer, Wicked. how that falls back to liberty is um, they are going to have to support the promoters. Um, maybe not so much the teams, but certainly the promoters are going to need some support from liberty. Um, and it's going to cost liberty some money to do it. And I can also I can even see there being a case for liberty picking and choosing the promoters that they support. Um, and and they're going to have to make some decisions on that. The difference between how Liberty approach it and Bernie approaches it, in my opinion, is that Bernie was very, very much more hard-nosed. He was very much more um, take it or leave it. Um, and I think Liberty have, have, have bent over to try and assist some of the promoters. I, I think uh, Matthew's entirely right there. I, I think that Montreal is actually the the definition of the destination city race that, that Liberty has been uh, banging on about because you get more money from a place which brings in more people. And Montreal is unique in that respect. It brings in three times as many people to, to go to the party than to go to the race. No other place does that. 
uh, that I can think of. Melbourne, Melbourne maybe has a little bit, and Monaco, there's there's obviously a little bit of that too. But in Monaco, uh, actually, your your people are going to watch the race, um, even if it's sort of just going on in the background behind them. But but it is Montreal is is remarkable in that respect. I think I think that most of the promoters, with the exception of a few of the Europeans, are in a situation where governments will bail them out because of their value to the region. Um, obviously, you have you have governments in in far flung places which put in a lot of money. The European races don't pay a lot, uh, with the exception probably of Red Bull Ring. I think they pay a fairly decent whack of money. But beyond that, Montreal, sorry, Monaco doesn't pay much. Britain doesn't pay much. Germany didn't pay much. That's why they're not there anymore. Spain's peanuts, France's peanuts. These are races that they can basically lose because teams are not making a lot of money. So the interesting thing about when we come back after the coronavirus is people talk about let's go around the European races. That's not the way to do it, financially speaking. I mean, they need to get to 15 races to get the full payouts on the TV uh, deals and on the the um, sponsorship deals. They're not going to get to 15 races the way things are going. So we're looking at we're looking at a situation where they're going to take a percentage because each contract's going to have a, a clause in it saying you've got to get you've got to have 15 races for us to pay the full whack, 15 or equivalent number. But basically, I think it's 15. So um, basically, they want to go to Singapore, they want to go to Russia, they want to go to China, they want to go to the big payers, um, Baku. And now that's where it gets difficult because you have to transport everything around the world. And there's a whole bunch of different problems with that, not least the fact that there's a huge, huge run on, on freight planes at the moment. There aren't enough freight planes flying in the world. You can't get medical supplies around, so they can't waste freight planes on Formula One. And that's going to go on for a while yet. So... You know, I think I think the idea of just sort of popping around Europe and and uh, and Liberty paying for it all just doesn't make any sense to me. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Is it true that, um, I know for the, for, so the, the 15 races for sponsorship is, is something that I've heard bandied around and i think i mentioned this when in our last discussion i 
even though I'm fairly diligent, I never got to that clause in any of our sponsorship deals. So I wasn't aware um, where that lay because I, I wasn't anticipating us not doing a complete season. I checked this week to see if I could find out what that number was. And I was told definitively that in most of the contracts, it's 15. Right. right. And is it true that they have to do eight races for it to be a classified as a proper world championship? And they is it true that they have to be races. on three continents? No, they have to do eight races and not certainly on more than one continent. But having said that, um, they should also have a number of manufacturers. And, and the FIA is going to be lenient. Look, the World Sports Car, World Endurance Championship, has been running with one uh, yeah. one, one manufacturer for the last couple of years. Um, and they've just let it run because they don't want to cancel the World Championship. So I think they will have to keep it to eight to give it credibility. But I'm not yeah. sure. Uh, that they need necessarily to do three continents. Um, right. Having said that, you know, if they, if they, if there is another problem, which is people talk about running into in, into January um, and February, but of course all the contracts end on December 31, so you'd have to have completely new contracts to to do that. Now, I mean, I quite like the idea of going to Australia and ending the season in Australia in February and staying on for a couple of weeks and starting the next one in March. That would be great, but. Um, you know, I think that's a long way down the line. But I think that the actual contractual messes that need to be sorted out for us to go beyond December 31 are huge. Yeah. Uh, if we just go to the chat room briefly, European says, so basically a handshake with Bernie is savage. It gets you married and with kids. And that is one powerful handshake. And if we go down to Christopher Fonseca, who says, Bernie basically exited Mr. Carter to the Night's Watch. Uh, but I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure you're hang still. On, hang on, hang on. But Bernie, Bernie wasn't necessarily calling all the shots. There were a bunch of fairly unpleasant people called CVC Capital Partners who were sort of pulling Bernie's strings to some extent, um, and they were just there. You know, they were milking the cows until the cow was effectively dead. And and to be fair, I mean, I always got on very, very well with Bernie. He he helped me in in ways that I wouldn't even go on to into on this podcast. Over what are they? My period in Lotus. Oh, um, he was he was very very good. He was very good to me. He was very good. I'm very very straight. Bernie's a very, in my opinion, very. When he says he's going to do something, he does it. Um, he had every intention of putting me in charge of the race here in Montreal. I fully believe that. He was told. He told me directly, and I believe him, that he was told he was going to be retained as the CEO for three years after Liberty took over. Oh. And he told me that he was surprised when he got moved to Chairman Emeritus. Um, he wrote a letter that week um, to Ross and to Chase to tell them that he believed that they should put me in, in Montreal. So um, I think Bernie's handshake is is reliable and is trustable um and i think that there was a lot of things that were taken out of his hands um and i don't blame him for for one minute and i love living here in montreal i'm sure you do and uh, that proves to me that you are within uh within hearing distance of your good lady uh wherever you are podcasting from um i'll ask the two of you always I'm... always these days i'm always within earshot of uh of my whole family you need a shed that's what you should get yourself a, sh- a soundproof shed i mean matt uh, somebody got very upset with us, uh, didn't they? Because um, I referred to my children as my terrible, terrible, awful children. And he said he wasn't going to listen again because he loves his children. And we, we all love our kids, but they're terrible. And I, I stand by it. It's hard to argue if you've raised a child from a baby 
that there are some difficult, difficult times involved along the way, regardless of how you feel about them. They're annoying and they're liars. Treeface licked his gravy from his plate today when he was finished his <laughs> roast dinner. He licked the rest of it like an animal, like a cat lapping things from a saucer. So I think I'm justified. Sorry, one guy who's never listening again because I told the truth about my kids. Uh, but I'll ask our guests uh, a question, which I'm sure they'll both agree on. I think it's fairly simple. If you could choose between Bernie being in charge and Liberty and Chase Carey being in charge, who 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 would you pick? Uh, Joe, who would you pick? Well, I think <laughs> that Bernie did a terrific job in the era in which he built the sport. And I think that when it was handed on to Liberty, I think that they brought in different dimensions to the whole thing that have served the sport very well. It's different, but I think that the, the potential for growth up until the coronavirus outbreak was looking very good. And I think that they did things that Bernie couldn't have done because it wasn't in his nature to do. And he, he wouldn't even have thought of it. So uh, in a way, I think it's passing the baton. He's also, you know, let's not forget, Bernie is 90 years old in October. You know, 90 years old, it's time to have a bit of a rest. I know Bernie doesn't look at it that way. You know, that is reality. It is a fact. So I think he passed the baton on, and I think basically they took it and ran with it, and and they've done a pretty good job. So uh, I don't want to choose between the two of them. I just say that, you know, they they complement one another. Wow, it does kind of sound like you chose. Mr. Carter, Joe Saywood says, Bernie, a relic from a bygone day that needs to move aside for liberty. Do you wholeheartedly agree and endorse that? Well, obviously, Liberty weren't involved when I when I was involved at all. So I only I only ever experienced Formula One under under Bernie's regime. Um, I would say that yes, Liberty have taken the baton and run with it, but I would say they've stumbled a little bit along the way. I don't think they have necessarily picked up the baton and run with it. Clearly, um, I would say. My answer would be, if I had to pick between the two, I would say that I think, and again, let's just caveat this, that I'm looking from the outside in now, um, that I think that Bernie, um, if he'd stayed in charge, potentially would have had to bow to some more modern technologies and some more modern ways of looking at things. Um, And I think his style married to a little bit of what Liberty are doing would be the the best way to do it. So... in a in a very in a sitting on the fence answer, I think a little bit of both is probably the the best way forward. But if I had to fall one way, I would probably go with uh, I think Bernie probably overall was doing a better job, and that, that some of that's based on on what I know from some of the people that work within FOM um, and how and and how they see things now and how they were before, um, and talking to the teams as well. There's um, there's lots of relaxing on. Uh, on passes and and things like that that uh, I know Joe and I talked about it in Austin Austin last year but uh, some of that's good and some of it's bad and some of it is being abused um and I think that uh, I think Liberty are doing some things right and some things wrong but that's, that was always going to happen well there you go Joe Mr Carter's answer is uh, Liberty have failed to hold the baton and run with it and we should bring back the old regime I'm being facetious of course but I am curious uh, what are these things about um taking Liberty's with, with access no no they've 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 just um so i was in my <laughs> i'll follow your lead spanners here Ooh. i was in the vip uh caviar and champagne area at austin of course you and, were. Me too. Uh, 
and the, some journalist with a baseball cap on and uh, was wandering past the window and uh, distracted <coughs> me from my lobster and champagne. So I went out onto the balcony and, uh, and it was Mr. Sayward. And I said, what the hell are you doing up here? And he had been granted access for a couple of hours to come and have a meeting. Um, which but no, would, I'm, which I'm, would never I'm, have happened in the old days. And I'm being very facetious. And I, I, I no, no. I but it, but, but having said that, you know, we're. I, I don't think that's a bad thing because we're working. No. And if you can't meet the, in that particular case, I was meeting my American editor, and he can't get in the paddock, and I couldn't get in the paddock club in the old days. So you'd have to meet somewhere else, and that's difficult. And it's also insane if you stop and think about it. It's nuts. So the fact we were able to meet up in a VIP area. For, for half an hour, and people gave me the pass because they knew I wouldn't m- misuse it. Got it. I gave it back again afterwards. Boom. Now, if you're if you're trying to do play tricks with it, get the pass all weekend, this kind of stuff, you're never going to do it. But if you have that trust again, it's bound to trust. You know, can I have a pass for a couple of hours? No problem. Boom. Done. My my, my point is definitely not directed towards Joe at no. all. One hundred percent. I was I being facetious, but I know that that they've maybe. And this comes from people with an FOM as well as the teams and, and some of the sponsors as well. They've Liberty have maybe gone too far in, in one direction. Bernie had things very, very much locked down um, to the tune. I, I think I've said this before, but one of the owners of Lotus, um, Andy Ruin, um, in Silverstone in 2014, couldn't get on the grid. Um, and he was the owner of the team. And I could go on the grid and... I even grabbed hold of Pasquale and said, look, I'm going to give him my pass. And Pasquale said, you do that, I'm taking it off you. Um, so, you know, this, this was an owner of the team who couldn't get onto the grid in uh, at his home race. And I know Where, that now... Where is the logic in that? Sorry? Where is the logic in that? Exactly. And I, now that, I know now I was in a, in a paddock club event in Austin and they were handing out grid passes like they were confetti. Um, so I think there's, I think, you know, Liberty, and, and this is that's such a small point and it's such an irrelevant point really in the overall scheme of things, but I just think it's, uh, it's indicative of the way that Liberty have approached some things. I think they've maybe gone a little bit too far away from the Bernie. They sort of did a very, um, scorched earth policy with, with everything that Bernie was doing and maybe some of what Bernie was doing wasn't too bad and, and a little bit of both is the way forward. Agree, Joe? I would agree with most of that. I think one of two things Liberty is doing is terrific. Yeah. Uh, getting rid of some of the races that Bernie left him as poison pills. Um, Which ones? Well, Brazil. Brazil. Yeah. Brazil is a classic poison pill. They get no money out of it at all. Costs them a fortune to go there. And basically, uh, they got screwed. So, and who's Bernie's wife again? Uh, Brazilian, I think. Works for Mr. And did she, was she not the lawyer for the Brazilian Grand Prix? Something like that, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. A lot of reading between the lines to be done here on Missed Apex Podcast. Uh, Guys, uh, firstly, I'd love to say, you know, thank you so much for your time and agreeing to do this. If you've got time, we have a few lighter listener questions. If you're game. uh, I'm good. I mean, I'm asking you that live on the stream. So what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to say, no, I want to bin this off. I (laughs) hate doing this. It's bedtime. It's bedtime. (laughs) It is. It's late for you in France and it's only just drink o'clock in Canada. Matt, I suppose I should arbitrarily check with you if you're okay to to stick with it or would you need to go and play trumpet or take pictures of a trumpet and post it on instagram well you know i have the busiest social calendar these days but i suppose i could make an exception because the company is exceptional 
Okay, so what I'll do, Matt, I'll cut you a deal. I get two listener questions in, and you then get to ask your Concordy questions. Should we do that? And since sure, I decided quite early on that these two were going to be sweary and litigious, I made the decision not to edit anything. The video editor is not happy at all with anyone who is a part of this production because he's going to have to slice and dice this thing uh, to fend off the YouTube lawyers. However, I'll go for my uh, I'll go for my lighter ones. Joe, you travel around in Europe. This is from just a bloke in our Patreon Slack group. When you're driving around in your, I, I believe it's a, a brand new Lexus, um, 12 litre uh, yeah, 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 yeah. gas guzzler, what do you listen to? What's your favourite band um, while you're driving around the European city? You've, you've got a Prius, haven't you, Joe? I do have With a about a million miles on it. 330,000 yeah. miles. Wow! Why? And I've, got, I've got to tell you, I had, to go to the, I had to go to the garage the other day and the mechanic, Looked at the numbers and said, oh, 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 oh. "I'm close to your norm." Um, that is so racist. So, yeah, it's true. <laughs> anyway, anyway, what do I listen to? If I tell you, you'll just laugh at me. So there you are. Yeah, yeah but we have I, to. We have I, to know. I like I like very calming music, um, and I've always liked a lady called Enya, who makes me very calm. And one of my favorite things is to drive around the Arc de Triomphe with Enya playing and let everyone else get stressed. Do you know what, Joe? That is the Joe that I have gotten to know over the last two years or so. And you believe it or not, Joe, some people think you're like this curmudgeonly grumpy <laughs> guy who's very severe. But the dark secret is that actually you're a bit of a liberal hippie. I'm not a liberal hippie, but I'm certainly not grumpy. And, uh, you know, sometimes people irritate me with their silliness. It, social media is is not necessarily a good thing always, but it is also a means of getting to the public. So you have to deal with um, all kinds of people and you just have to accept that. It, it took a while to get used to it with blog comments and things like that over time. I, I got some really very unpleasant people. Um, but that's, you know, the end of the day. Life's too short to worry about it. So, um, yeah, I just, I'm an Enya kind of person, you know, so. I'm just laughing about that. Maybe I'll have to try that. We took a bit of a family drive. I mean, understand we've been at home for weeks and weeks and my wife was like, can we please go somewhere and see some different scenery? So we packed up the car, got in the car. I was on the road three and a half minutes and found myself yelling at somebody in the completely trafficless streets of New York for just being an idiot in the way they were driving. So, so Inya, Inya it is. I'll try that next time, I promise. Okay, and anyone who judges Matt as a New Yorker for yelling at anyone, that is culturally insensitive. That is what their people, that is what their people do. And I have to say, Joe, uh, just as an aside, I, I did take some inspiration from the way you handle your comments and your social media. Because believe it or not, some people say quite rude things at me sometimes as well. Uh, and we share a common kind of ban hammer policy. Someone in the chat room here said that you banned them simply for disagreeing. I, I think you tend to block people who It depends if they disagreed rudely. If you disagree rudely, you get blocked. Why the hell, what right do you have to be rude about an opinion? I don't care if you disagree with me, fine. I'll happily have a discussion with you, fine. But if you say, Joe, you're a bleep, well, I don't want to talk to you. End of story. Goodbye. Well, there so you go. So if you want to get back in, apologize and, you know, 
Maybe, who knows? Now, that was a chat. Remember, there you go. Email Joe. I don't, do you want to give out your personal email on the no, show? No, I do not. His phone number is... <laughs> you can tweet No, okay, yeah. Tweet him with an apology. I'll, I'll highlight it. I'll pass it on. Um, and Mark Greenow is defending you in the chat, saying you do get a lot of rubbish on your social media. Uh, Matthew Carter, you chicken out of social media. I reckon you'd have quite a big following if you were to go on to Twitter. Also, uh, let's pass that question on to you. What is your favourite driving music? I imagine that in all things, you're a very serious man and that you simply stare stoically at the task at hand and music would be a frivolous distraction. To be totally honest, I generally listen to podcasts when I'm driving. I don't listen to music. Facts and information. I knew it. I absolutely, I knew that. (laughs) Definitely. Uh, Matthew, let's ask you a business question then because you're far too serious a man for me to be asking you about your pop tastes. Peter Hume asks, Mr. Carter, the correct way to address you, uh, what do you think F1 should be doing to help teams that are struggling financially now, if anything? The risk of losing F1 teams is real. Uh, is it F1's job to wade in and help? Or is it, well, if you can't survive, you can't survive? Um, well, the first thing is, I, I don't see why the teams would be struggling just yet. Um, there is, there's in the future, potentially, but... The money that they get, so let's just rewind a little bit, as I said before. So basically, very simple business um, model. Um, they um, they have two forms of income. They get the money from sponsors and they get the money from FOM. Um, the money from FOM is for last year, for, for large, it's for the TV, it's for, there's two pots, one's for TV rights and one's for the uh, for where you finished in the, in the championship last year. So though that, uh, those monies, as far as I'm aware, are still being paid. There's no reason that they're not being paid because they're from last year. So they've still got that income. The sponsorship deals have all been signed prior to the start of the season. Um, that was why I asked a question of Joe about the, the number of races before sponsors can, can technically renege on their agreements. I don't think sponsors would renege in my, my experience with them. I think they would probably, the worst case scenario, they would maybe pass things forward a year. But whatever, whatever that is, they're still getting paid by their sponsors or they've been paid by their sponsors. So in this currently where they are sitting currently, there's no difference apart from the fact that they're not having to pay for travel. They're not having to pay for hotels. They're not having to pay for development. They're not having to build any new parts. So where they sit at the moment, and I think it is ridiculous that some of them are furloughing their their staff. I don't agree with that at all. Um, but let's not get political. Um, Where they sit at the moment, I don't, I don't think that they should be, experiencing any issues yet now next year if the prize money doesn't get paid out because there's no championship then i can see that that being a being an issue i think that uh, the furloughing thing is simply because the government's paying 80 percent of uh, the, the uh, salaries of within reason not the expensive people but they're furloughing everybody they can get government money for which saves money so i agree with matthew there's no reason why anybody should be in trouble the only ones I was worried about were Williams and Mr. Latifi and HSBC have got together and there's a financial package to keep them going. So uh, as long as the man from Sauber doesn't get bored of paying, everyone should be fine. Um, uh, and as Matthew says, it's all done a year in advance. Sorry, a year behind, rather. Um, so th- the real problem comes next year and um, we'll just have to see how much money um, can come from the races this year, if any. I mean, I don't know. I'm not willing to sort of 
judge how many races there'll be this year. But I think we have to look at the possibility that there won't be any, um, which is kind of scary, actually. But then, but but also, don't forget, if there are no races, then the teams. If we're talking specifically about the teams, the teams have got no expenses. So there's no Apart there's from nothing. the staff costs, yeah. <laughs> You've got a bunch got of people a... being paid to do nothing. So Exactly. But then but they, they would have had that anyway and they've had the income to cover that. So this this is the bit that it that it annoys me a little bit, even with the Premier League football teams as well. It really annoys me that they're that they're taking the government money, which you know, it's not free cash. This <laughs> the money's gotta go back, you know. In some way, shape, or form, this money's got to be paid back. So it annoys me. And, and knowing a little bit about the way that an F1 team works and the and the financial side of it, you know, this is all we're talking about next year. We're talking about 2021. If any of these issues come to come to fruition, and it's it's much much different for the promoters. Don't get me wrong, and it's much much different for Liberty because, in theory, I mean, the promoters are all about people attending the races. You know, that is the 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 model here in Montreal is government money. And ticket sales. And if there are no large gatherings of people going forward, then suddenly that becomes a big issue. And Liberty, as I as I as I mentioned just just previously, I think Liberty are going to have to help the promoters out. They're going to have to reach into their pocket and and help out some of the promoters. Except um, except that some of these promoters, the Grand Prix is is largely a loss leader, and a lot of them actually make more money if they don't have a Grand Prix because they don't have to spend the money. So there is, for example, the British Grand Prix could happily run uh, making circuit, could run making money for years to come, but they have to pour everything back into the Grand Prix, but they want the Grand Prix because of a status thing. So there is that side of it as well, um, which is an interesting point that you made earlier on about, um, you know, without a Grand Prix, some of them will struggle. Actually, without a Grand Prix, some of them won't. It's the ones you have to build things that cost lots of money. The Monaco's, the Melbourne's, Canada too. Um, exactly. You have to invest a lot of money. And, and to be fair, Silverstone has to invest in grandstands and stuff. But the ones that have to invest large sums of money, like Australia, they're in big trouble, but the government will pay. But the government will get into trouble because they've paid out that money and got no money back. Yeah. Uh, Joe, uh, whilst you're on Australians, I'll jump to a listener question, if you don't mind, from Twitter. Pete in Perth asks an Australian-based question. You know those Australians they're, they're so Australian-centric. And he wants to know, um, are there many Australians working behind the scenes in F1? And can you can you name a few that are good and we might not have heard of? Is there a big Aussie contingent in the paddock? Not a big one, but there's a decent number of Australians working in various different things. I mean, I've known lots of them over the years working in different areas of the sport, and some have been extremely good. Um Quite often you'll find hospitality people um, who work there because they come over on the old European trip thing. And you can, say, you can say barman. They're all barman. If they're all barman, just say it. Well, were, some of them are bar ladies. It's too. not racist if it's true. Um, <laughs> but there are lawyers and there are mechanics and there are marketing people. There's a lot of, there's a lot of um, people from all over the world, um, lots of different nationalities. Usually they're quite unusual people. But yeah, I mean, Australians, there are some very, very sharp and very good Australians involved in F1. The takeaway from that is that you just said that all Australians are unusual people. No, no, no. Everybody in Formula One is slightly unusual. It's it's not a world for normal people. Right. Okay. I'm with you. I'm with you, Joe. Okay. So we have two major things to do before we can get out of here. 
I've let it run longer because this is the best panel we've ever had. And people would frankly uh, come and hunt me down if I'd have cut it off after an hour. Uh, so Matt, um, both these things are really in your, in your zone. We've got to do comment of the week because the chat room has been amazing and busy. And I think you would come and hunt me down and murder me if I didn't let you talk about this Concord thing. Now, can I, we- can I ask Joe a question first? Yeah, why not? Yeah, sure. Totally. Go on. Uh, no, I just want to know what your thoughts are on racing behind closed doors this year. Whether or not they it, it will happen, what it will look like, how I mean, Formula One is in a is fairly unique in that the interaction between the crowd and what's going on on the track is is fairly distant. Anyway, it's not as if uh, it's, uh, aside from the podium, I get at the end of it. Uh, you know, there's yeah. a it's it's not as interactive. We're as, used to, we're used to racing Jerez de la Frontera in the 1990s, and that was like racing behind closed doors. Well, I remember Bahrain in <laughs> Bahrain 2014 was yeah. pretty much like racing behind. Yeah. I think from Liberty's point of view, it's potentially the only way they're going to get some income and manage to manage to keep some of the contracts going. But the um, cost- and then secondary to that, I sound like a bloody journalist. Secondary to that is, would you go along to the races? Uh, okay, this, the first bit is, um, what are they going to do? Are they going to rent the circuits and run the race themselves? Because the, the race promoters, with the exception perhaps of Austria or the government races further afield, can't afford to do it without ticket sales. They have to have ticket sales to survive. So either Liberty pays waives the race fee which they're not going to do it doesn't make any sense because nobody makes any money out of it at all um unless you have 15 races and the con you know the sponsorship things kick in i think sorry to interrupt but i think the theory is that they would uh yes they'd waive the race fees because they would get the tv streaming money so if they get the tv streaming money then that would for liberty themselves so the promoter effectively isn't doing anything. There's another thing too, though, to bear in mind, and which is not all the TV companies are pay-per-view. The free-to-air ones rely on advertising and no one's advertising at the moment. So that is a that is another problem um, which relates to the TV and why actually the TVs might want to sit it out too. So uh, I don't know. And the second answer to that question is if there's a Grand Prix, I'm going to be there. That's right. my job. Okay. So, now over to you, Trump. No, you have. You can't say it like that. You have to say trumpets. You have to do it like that. Do you want to try, Joe? Just for over to you, trumpets. I just hate the first bit of that word. Anyway, go on. <laughs> I don't blame you. It's been the bane of my life. Stop it! I got my Every, degree from stop. conservatory in '89, and to have my instrument ruined. But we're not going to go there. Oh, your thing is ruined by me saying trumpets. Joe is making a political statement about the king of the United States. Exactly. Oh, pr- pr- President, pr- I'm just going to switch to you, Matt. Over to you. Right. Well, speaking of trumpets, I have to congratulate Mr. Carter on a trumpets level question there. Multiple parts. 17 parts. Very well done. <laughs> You've been paying attention. I'm proud of you. Uh, but if Formula One says we are going to start the season, we're going to run it behind closed doors, we're going to quarantine the workers, we're going to do everything to be safe. Does that not then put the onus on the TV people if they don't show up, they still have to fork over the money? Like, I don't know how these contracts no. are structured. The, so that's, they, that's yeah. I mean, is this just them trying to get them to pay out regardless? They're, they'll only pay out if if it's worth it for them to pay out if there's not 15 races. So And then I presume there are percentages after that. But the, to be quite honest, 
it's not about promoters or racing teams or even the Formula One group. It's about government. It's about what's safe and what's not safe. It's about transporting things across borders. It's about freight. It's about things that are just really hard to do. It's about asymmetric, asymmetric, asymptomatic uh, numbers. What percentage? We don't know what percentage of people are asymptomatic. So if we fly 2,000 people into Austria, 250 of them may have the virus, and we don't know even if they, even if the tests don't show it. So it's kind of bonkers. And the last thing Formula One needs is to go around the world spreading the virus. Is not smart to do that. So it's much better to sit it out. I'm not saying I want to see it happen, but taking risks you know, that are that are dangerous for the general health. It's only a sport. You know, this is only entertainment. In time of war, it stops. And we have to remember that. Joe, you make a really good point. Uh, but F1 has been the area in which I have not been able to be objective about any of the recent pandemic in Australia, even though I was like taking my kids out of school early, I was still going, yeah, but the F1 can go ahead. Like principles be damned. I want to see race, racy race cars. No, but F1 was not wrong in Australia. F1, when they went to Australia, it was perfectly reasonable thing to do. What happened is that circumstances went so fast that they got caught out and the key point was that somebody in the circus got the, the virus. After that, it was just a matter of how the hell do we get out of here? And the problem there was the government wanted to keep it going on because they'd invested all that money. So you know, but that's why some of the drivers went home in the middle of the night because they'd been told it's off. And then the government saying it's on. Now, that's why. It's because they had spent so much money to set the whole thing up. And it's all going to go home without anyone using all the stuff they set up. So you know, I don't think that was wrong at all. I, a lot of media got very excited about it, but it was largely because they had to sit up halfway through the night and wait six or seven hours while, while Chase and the gang sorted out the mess. Well, Trumpets, I'm sorry, but Matthew Carter, Mr. Carter to you and me, stole your final question. So we, we don't actually have time for your Concord chat. We'll get to it another time. But what I'm going to do now, because this is what happens when Matthew Carter is on, is that I tried to wrap the show up and finish it, and then he comes in with his one more thing. So let's just check, Mr. Carter. The the one more thing is, oh, cool. Lots, but no, it's okay. It's no, good. no, it's no, okay. No, you're supposed to say Concord now. Oh, okay. Oh yeah, Concord, Concord, Concord. You two are in league. Well, to to well, be fair, say, let's just hear what he has to ask, eh? Yeah, let's. Yeah, but trumpets can go ahead with this question, but I was going to ask about the uh, the cost cap, or I was going to talk about the cost cap a little bit because I've got some fairly uh, interesting background knowledge but it's oh no 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 no, you've said that i will i'll get over to trumpets first i'll get lynched happy to know that the second part of my concord question was about the cost cap so if you have something by all means share go no 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 go do do your question do your question we'll 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 hit the cost cap during the answer i'm sure Um, matt i think the question should be hey what's the the thing about the cost cap All right. So the original question was, we've heard the Concord Agreement is up for being signed by all the teams. Obviously, the global situation has thrown a bit of a monkey wrench into a lot of issues. Is it going to happen that the teams and the FIA and FOM all sign the same agreement, which we haven't had since 2013 with the bilateral agreements? And where are things? Is anyone even really that concerned about it? If it doesn't happen, could we just have bilaterals again? 
And then as part of that, they've been talking about the cost cap. We've seen people talking about two-tier cost caps. Is that just, uh, to borrow a politician's phrase, malarkey? Or, or is there some real important stuff and important points being made here? Eight-tier question. I'll tell you what we'll do. I will ask, I'll answer the first bit, and I'll leave Matthew for the second bit, okay? The, the first bit is that they've been working towards a new Concord Agreement for a very long time. Uh, I think the bilaterals are past their best, but the, but the truth of the bilaterals is that they're just a Concord Agreement with a few numbers different. Uh, the Concord Agreement is just the Concord Agreement, and the new one will be much like the old one. You don't change something that's worked for 40 years. So you're just changing certain little bits and pieces. So I think ultimately we will have a Concord Agreement. I think there will be a Ferrari uh, extra payment, but it'll be half as much as it used to be. I don't think there'll be the side deals in the way that there were before. There may be one or two, but you know it won't be like it was before. It will be a, a better share. Now, I did hear something uh, which was quite interesting about um, a sort of cost cap budget argument about how aerodynamics, the, the big teams would do less aero than the small teams, which I thought was a very, very interesting idea, very uh, baseball, actually, where the Yankees sort of play for everybody else. Um, and I quite like that, but I don't know where that's going. But I think yeah, it's got to be signed by December 31, and I'm pretty sure it will. There we are. Matthew. In, in terms of the cost cap, I so I was privileged enough to sit on the strategy group for, for a whole season and to listen to um, the, uh, the, the, the bunch of individuals sitting around the table well and the way, that they, the way that they approached that specific meeting. And I don't for the life of me think anything has changed. Um, you basically had Bernie with his six votes and then at the time, I think it's still the same, and then six, the six top teams with their votes. And the FIA was sitting there, and a bunch of lawyers, and uh, and everyone, everyone waffling on, and everyone defending their own corner. Um, based on that, and the way that people reacted, the way that people acted, I find it really, really difficult to see how they're going to manage to bring this cost cap in. And I appreciate the pandemic has changed the world's view on things. Um, I think Ferrari have got a very, very good point about the fact that they are developing elements that they're giving to smaller teams, which means that they should be allowed to have an extra an extra payment. Now, I listened to a podcast the other day where um is it Gary Anderson was talking and he was saying that he thought it was he thought it, and he he painted a picture which in my opinion was completely wrong where he said that if they spent 10 million developing it and then they each individual he was talking about gearboxes cost a hundred thousand dollars then they had 11 million invested. If they sold 10 to Haas, then they had to pick the price, et cetera, et cetera. But they're never going to be able to charge all of the R&D back to a customer team. And they do build some parts that they sell onto more than one team, et cetera, et cetera. So it becomes difficult. And this was always the argument with the top teams and the big teams and their expenses, et cetera, et cetera. There's also in Italy, I believe it's a law that if they lay off a certain number of their staff, they're technically considered to be an insolvent company. Um, that and so that, that's, it's going to... That is true, but you can always, uh, you know, Ferrari can have a sports car program. It's not that hard. So you, you don't have to lay people off. So anyway, back to you, Matt. It's true, but it, but it's, but it's then... <laughs> so then what's, what's the cost cap all about? And, you know, even back in my days of, of 14 and 15, when you had Red Bull and Red Bull Technologies and Williams and Williams Advanced Technologies, and you had all these areas where they were trying to hide 
um, quite legitimately uh, to an extent they were hiding what they were spending. Um, there's also, I mean, the cost cap that did get agreed. I know this has been talked about a lot. You know, the driver's salary wasn't included and the top three executives weren't included and the um, my hospitality wasn't included, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, at 175 million plus, 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 then, you know, you're you're way out the realms of it being a being a viable or a, or an imposable cost cap anyway. So I think they need to do something. Um, they've talked about it for years. My honest opinion, knowing the people who are sat around the table, is that they it's going to be virtually impossible for them to come to an agreement that everyone's happy with. Um, cutting through all that rubbish, as Joe rightly said, I think Ferrari are going to come out of it with an extra payment, maybe not as much. You know, there will be extra payments for Williams getting extra payment for, I can't remember what it's called, historic and a historical payment. They, they did just, have a historical payment, but that was more to do with Frank and exactly uh, bernie than it is to do with claire and bernie so um, yeah. <laughs> and some of the other ones are just they're, they're just buying the vote really along the yep. way bernie needed different things so we'll give you this if you do that um I, I think that uh in terms of how it will all work out in the end first of all i think there are some more sensible people around the table now than there were at that time one or two i don't think it's too different I've been replaced by Cyril, so that's definitely a downturn. Um, <laughs> Bernie's been replaced by Chase, so yeah. yeah. But aside yeah. from that, it's all the same people, really. Well, no, you've got you've got um, uh, Manish has been replaced by Fred. Yes, uh, which is whatever. Ron's not there anymore, which is a big change. Um, that's true. Yeah. Although Eric used to come to a lot of the meetings. But yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah Eric, Eric came to the meetings, but he didn't have the yeah. final say, did he? That's true. Um, yeah. And you've got Zach now, who is, you know, uh, he's been he's... particularly banging on about everyone struggling, which isn't, I think, necessarily a helpful thing. But I think that there is a sense, and I think the initial cost cap, I get what you're saying about um, it's ridiculously high number. Um, but the fact is, once you've got it in place, the... Once you have something in place, you can start bringing it down. And that's, I think, what the plan was. It is you get something in place and then you start squeezing it down. And what's yeah. happened is the coronavirus has made it happen much faster. And, and I think that what we will see is we will see people who, you know, M Mercedes have got enough people uh, that they can move people off into, into doing their Formula E program or whatever. Um, you know, there are ways of dealing with it where you can get around the laws. Of course, if you're looking for an argument to say we can't do this because it's easy, you know, you can easily find ways why you can't lose people. But the fact is you can and you don't have to lay them off. So um, and you can develop new businesses. Of course. Businesses. Of course. But Zach, I mean, Zach Brown's comment, I was quite opposed to those as well because I think if McLaren were at the front of the grid, then <laughs> he wouldn't be saying the things that he's saying. I mean, it's for him to be all holistic and saying that this is where we should be going and everyone should, we should bring these top three teams back down to, to where we are. I mean, they wouldn't have been saying that 10, 15 years ago. It was, uh, and I appreciate it wasn't Zach there at the time, but if McLaren were where Mercedes are, Zach would be singing the same tune that Toto and the same tune that Of course, uh, but having said, that, having said that, I think that Toto, I, I, the one who hasn't been as reasonable, I think Christian's been, or Christian and the Red Bull gang who've been, less reasonable perhaps than, than Ferrari Always. and Mercedes because I think that they are willing to 
because they they come from big companies and they have money behind them they're willing to to look at the sport as, a, as something they need and uh, where they can find sensible compromises without affecting their own level of competitiveness yeah. and actually making themselves more cost efficient anyway there we are so. actually another quick question for you joe well well <laughs> you're there um so i i really i only really picked up on this quite recently that liberty bought a big stake in formula e mm-hmm. i think they're, they're one of the different, biggest different shareholders liberty different, different liberty well no but it's part of the same company yeah, no no it, it is actually it's quite interesting because they are very very in competition in fact uh when the indianapolis motor speedway and indycar was up for sale and roger penske bought it he bought it because the two people bidding was liberty and liberty and neither one of them, Tony George thought neither one of them is a good idea. I'll go ask Penske if he's willing to do it. Um, so, so that kind of answers my question because my my thought process was that at some point, who knows where and when, Formula E and Formula One are going to merge. They might if, if Formula E survives that long. But I think the electric car revolution, um, well, Spanners knows my views on that. But, it's just a fad, you know, isn't it, Joe? It's just a fad. Well, I'm, you know something? Uh, when you take away the government subsidies, uh, sales in China dropped something like 40%. So, um, you know, I don't think people are going to buy them. In fact, right now, I don't think anyone's buying any cars. And that might go on for quite a long while yet. So that is something we have to worry about too. Funny thing, I actually went and looked up year-over-year year sales in the United States for cars. And it was a loss of 33 to 55% year-over-year year for the month of March. Yeah, March is now, a disaster. My question has to do with the cost cap. Originally, it was put forward to be a way of narrowing the field spread between the midfield and the manufacturers. Are we beginning to look at that as maybe being a lifeline to keep the manufacturers, specifically, I would say, Mercedes and Renault, in Formula One going forward, saying, here's a way we can guarantee you, you will be spending way less money in this sport. Don't give up on us. What are we looking at from a business point of view? When does a manufacturer like Mercedes say, okay, this has gone on long enough, our sales have tanked long enough, that we are going to have to reevaluate this? Well, this is, goes back to the point I was making about zero uh, new, cost neutral. Yep. Mercedes are getting to cost neutral this year. At some point, they will get there or it'll happen. <laughs> Renault, it's struggling because they're not been winning a lot. Now, how close can they get to that is another big problem. Alfa Romeo, I can't see what the hell they're doing in Formula One anyway, and I can't see you know, why they'd stay. We've got Aston Martin coming in, in a fashion. So you know, we've got one more. Honda, really hard one to judge what Honda would do. But they've invested a lot of money, a lot of money, um, to get where they are now. And to leave doesn't really make a lot of sense because that's just throwing money away. So I don't see... Uh, and also, we have we have a new manager coming in at Renault too, so we don't really know what to judge things by. Um, Renault are suffering, as everyone is suffering, but all they're they're all borrowing money to get them through the crisis. And uh, you know what we need to see is what the car sales are like after the crisis, and that is much more uh, key to the long term. I think you'll see pain manufacturer wise in other championships, but Formula One delivers so well what it does that you know that it makes sense to, to keep doing it i don't think the the world endurance championship or the world rally championship delivers anything like the same kind of bang for your buck so um i think they're much more likely to suffer 
than Formula One is. Well done. No, and you, you're a hundred percent right, Joe. It's absolutely that's that's spot on. It's um, the manufacturers that are there at the moment are gonna are gonna remain, in my opinion. Um, what Mercedes have got from their involvement in Formula One is is incredible. Their brand is, is over the last ten years. I mean, ten years ago, um, I heard someone say this the other day, and I can't remember who it was. A Mercedes estate car was a was a granddad's car, and now you've got uh, and now they've really moved that forward. So. Um, the 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 biggest issue I think is Renault of all the people that are involved, yeah. and that's largely to do with the way they've approached it and the way they uh, the way they continue to approach it. And as but, I've said before, but they when, have an Italian coming in to take over who's a passionate type. <laughs> well, when when we sold when we sold Lotus to Renault, and I absolutely one hundred percent know this for a fact, is that the it, there was no requirement for them to put any money into that team. It was at that time. It was it was as lean and as and as going to say lean and mean, but it was as lean as it could possibly be. And it was you know it was operating at a way that the sponsorship and the money from FOM was enough to sustain it. Now they made a decision to invest an awful lot of money in money in a lot of vanity projects at Enstone, um, and they put some money into their into their engine development, but. Um, no, and they didn't need to do that, and there was no need for them to do that. So but there's also a backloaded, there's a backloaded prize money deal there too, isn't there? That that goes way beyond the actual Concord agreement. Bernie was very clever. He gave a sort of five year deal to Renault, uh, putting the money after the Concord agreement ended to keep them in and to to basically divide them off from the other manufacturers. So I don't know where the negotiations on that are, whether they've negotiated away, but it was. It's like 170 million uh, extra money they're going to get after the Concord Agreement ends. Yeah. So there's a good reason to stay. Exactly. Exactly. So, so based on all those facts, it, you know, I honestly think all the manufacturers will will, will stay where they are. It's uh, Alfa Romeo. I just don't see that. But anyway. but Alfa Romeo is only a sponsor. They don't they don't own the team. Yeah, I know, but they're pretending, aren't they? Sort of. The same as what Aston Martin will be doing. I mean, well, yes, that's true too. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Right, how's it going, guys? Everyone, yeah. still it's time to go. It's time to go because I need to go to sleep. So. I yeah. am going to go because we are. Oh my god, an hour and forty nine minutes. I'm this is you. all Matthew Carter's fault. Thank you so much uh, for doing this. I've faded him down temporarily yeah. to definitely stop us from Good going luck. into a third hour. Uh, the voice you hear in the background is Joe, who thinks that I have dropped out. Uh, when it's in fact Joe that's dropped out, it's okay. It's no, fine. I, I have dropped out. I'm aware of it. Yeah. Well, you can't have done because I can hear you. So you are definitely undropped out, Joe. It's okay. Technology is hard. I'll explain it all later from beginning to end. First, there was the dinosaurs, but they were too slow, and an asteroid came and wiped them out. Matt, Matt, this is stupid. It's the worst show we've ever done. Uh, however, we do have to contractually uh, play our little game at the end of the show called. Comment of the week. We got there. The chat room are lynching me for stopping this show. However, uh, we're going to finish before the two-hour mark. So, Matt, who are the 85 nominations for Comment of the Week? Well, actually, there's only three, but they each oh. have five comments each, so Don't it's know. probably not as good as you think it is. You're First of all, I have to call out Mark Greenhow and iHammer. Thank you for dropping a little money in the tip jar. Always appreciate it. I like money. It buys food and services. And then I have to call out Michael Diestelhoff, 
um, for saying, I have to compliment you, Spanners. This is one of the best podcasts yet. Sayward and Carter really work together. But nonetheless, the moderation is top notch. It's all scripted. I wrote out in crushing detail everything they were to say and when they were to say it. And then going on to admit that he probably wouldn't win because it wasn't complimenting my dashing good looks. Those baby blues get me every time, Matt. All right, so back to the top. Uh, Nuripian would like to inquire about Matthew Carter's background. Is that a gear that didn't make it to Maldonado's car in time? Ooh, a little gear wheel in your background, <laughs> Mr. Carter. It's a clock. There we go. That's yeah, right. It's, but it's actually a piece of um, the 2014 gearbox. We gave them out as gifts. Joe might have one. We may have given Joe one. So it was another one of my cost. It was actually another one of my cost-saving areas. <laughs> but instead of buying external things, we were reusing bits of old gearboxes and gearing and stuff, and sticking them on a little uh, plinth and putting them. So that sits in my office here behind me. Matt, comment of the week. Comment of the week. God damn it. I'm doing the best I can. Um, Mike Stoner says Stroll will buy Missed Apex podcast next week. Lance will replace Spanners. I will be the number two host and be told that Stroll is light entertainery than you. Um, Ray Thompson comments that personally, I always thought Toto's evil scheme was to get Claire appointed as head of Williams, have her destroy the team, then swoop in to buy Williams. Guess I was wrong. No, Mr. Carter is buying Williams. He just hasn't told us yet. And it's going to be uh, Ray Thompson with one more map plus alcohol sponsorship equals genius i'm not that can't win i ran out of rum about three hours ago who's the winner i think the winner has to be our friend mike stoner scroll by map next week lance will replace spanners comment of the week well done mike you are the winner of comment of the week feel free to add that to your twitter bio i'm so sleepy now this is crazy but please Follow the whole crew at Matt Trumpets, at Joe Sayward as well on Twitter. The show at Missed Apex F1. Hire me to do your video conferences and teach you to do podcasting or even do your podcast for you. RichardReady.com. And you can't follow Matthew Carter on the internet. You'll have to go to Canada and just look for the biggest, grandest mansion. That's him. That's him. Even though he only stays in one wing, he still owns 400 acres. I actually don't know if that's a big amount or a small amount. I'm very bad at geography. But do please join us next Sunday. Um, We've had a huge increase in following, uh, in patrons, and our downloads are still strong. And I'm taking that as a mandate to keep covering a sport that hasn't had a race for six months. So we will be here every single Sunday. Do come and join us. Uh, Until then, please be brave because wounds heal. Chicks dig scars and glory lasts forever. This was Missed Apex. Oh Matt, I didn't I didn't plug the other thing. Remain indoors podcast. Remain indoors podcast. Oh, what's the point? No one listened to two hours. I mean it was good content, but no one sat here for two hours, Matt, and he's like, oh, I wonder what he's gonna plug at the end of two hours. I can say whatever I want now, because literally no one listens to a two-hour podcast. I can be racist. I can give you my political views. I can. What else are they going to do? I think right you're underestimating how bored home. people are. <laughs>
Oh, no, that's that. Well, I mean, in a way. It went for two hours. Yes, it went for two hours. Don't sit there all innocent. Like, oh, how did that go on for two hours? You during the pod over there. Saw me trying to end the show. You saw. You ask longer questions than I do. What is that? You're like stealing my brand here. You asked an 18-point question at one point. It was great fun. Uh, let's say, thank you very much to the live chat as well, dropping Super Chat donations in. That's really fantastic. Uh, the numbers, I haven't been tracking them, but the chat room has been super amazing. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.